The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Occasionally, when I'm lucky, I get a chance to fly into Queenstown, down over those mountains, into that airport, and watch all the private jets milling around there. And I wonder about Queenstown a lot, because it's where the really wealthy go to. Of course, it's famous for all of those bunkers where Peter Thiel and his mates want to go to avoid some sort of major disruption globally. But Queenstown is an illustration of the risks of widening inequality in our country. You only have to look at the big developments with the fancy houses and wonder, that's great, but who's actually making the flat whites? Who is working in the school? Who is the cop? Where do they live? Because they certainly can't afford the $1.5 million houses. How do we make sure as the inequality widens and the value of land increases, that people who actually have to do the work in a society have a secure, affordable place to live? And how can we use a tool to slow down that widening of equality, but also provide the income and the capital to build lots of affordable housing, social housing, and to solve what is in effect a market failure? Queenstown is a great example of widening equality, but it's also a great example of a new tool that we could use that is politically more acceptable and that has been in use for many decades all around the world, but only so far in Queenstown. On this week's When the Facts Change, I talked to Julie Scott, who's the CEO of the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust that got its start in 2007 when a chunk of land that was being developed for the so-called Jack's Point development, you might have heard of this, massive fancy houses on the outskirts of Queenstown worth hundreds of millions of dollars, when that land was being rezoned from a rabbit-infested sheep farm worth a couple of million dollars into a residential zone chunk of land worth tens of millions of dollars, making the landowner immediately astonishingly wealthy because of a public act, a swipe of a pen on a piece of paper, the council decided to force the developer to carve off some land for affordable housing. The Queenstown Lakes District Council in 2003 realised that it had a problem building, that it would become so expensive that regular people couldn't even live there. And that has indeed happened to the point where at various points just before COVID, people were actually sharing bunks, dozens of people living in a regular house in shifts on bunks, working as working in bars and restaurants and working as ski instructors and the likes. An extraordinarily awful situation. So there's a desperate need for affordable housing in New Zealand, more than 24,000 people on our social housing list and more than 800 in Queenstown itself. 
And the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust has been able to use these little carvings off of land or financial contributions from the rezoning of land for new developments and use that to build houses, hundreds of houses in Queenstown. This thing, it's called inclusionary zoning all around the world, although in Queenstown it's called inclusionary housing, has been used in places like the United States and Europe, the UK, Australia, to ensure that as the value of this land rises quickly, at least some of it is carved off and used for people to live in affordably, often through housing trusts. The Queenstown example right now is incredibly topical and everyone is focused on it in the planning and council community because there's been a big fight and how this fight ends will be crucial in whether or not this tool can be embedded in a big change that's coming. So since 2003, almost by accident, the inclusionary zoning or inclusionary housing was used to carve off the bits of land. This was something the council did and it's been challenged in court, but the council was allowed to do it. But this year, the council decided, let's formalise it and put it into the district plan and make sure that it applies to everyone who's building. So not just the big developers, but the mums and dads putting a, an extra house out the back. And that caused a political storm in Queenstown. It was one of the main issues of debate in the local elections. Should this inclusionary housing contribution which is 5% for the big developments and 1% for the infill housing developments, should this be put into the district plan? Of course, it was labelled politically as an inclusionary housing tax and has become a hot topic. Julie Scott tells us in this interview that the trust, wary of the risk of the whole thing being thrown out, has looked for a compromise where only the big developers have to pay the 5% contribution to the Community Housing Trust. And we'll see whether or not that works, and all of New Zealand's councils are watching this closely, because many of them face exactly the same issues and would love to use this tool, which so far is one of those few tools that we can use in New Zealand to capture some of those unearned gains in residential land. We don't have a capital gains tax and we don't have other forms of wealth tax to capture some of that and spread it around to slow down this growth and in inequality. Queenstown is the perfect example of a tool that's worked for 20 years and which at the moment could be embedded in that district plan. But wait, there's more. If it works in Queenstown and it gets through this debate, it could be embedded in all of the district plans in New Zealand if we want it to, because there's a big opportunity. Last week, the government announced massive Resource Management Act reforms that will mean that we go from 100 district plans across New Zealand to just 15. They'll all have to be rewritten in the next decade or so. Just imagine if we wrote into each of those district plans inclusionary zoning rules so that the big developers have to contribute that 5% for community housing. That would be a major change and a major opportunity to slow down this growth and inequality and ensure that some of that unearned gains gets put into affordable housing. This week on When the Facts Change, we go deep into inclusionary zoning and how it could be used 
to stop the widening of inequality in the one place in New Zealand where it's most extreme, Queenstown. Well, kia ora, and welcome to Julie Scott, to the When the Facts Change podcast. Uh, Julie, as the CEO of the Queenstown District Community Housing Trust, it's great to see you here on, on our podcast. Could you tell us what the trust does? For those people who may have passed through Queenstown, know it's a lovely place, um, occasionally looked in the real estate windows and, and, and been shocked. But tell us, what, what are you trying to do in Queenstown at the moment? Sure. So we are a registered community housing provider. That essentially means that we're a not-for-profit trust. We were set up for the purposes of delivering affordable housing to the people within the Queenstown Lakes District. So we run a range of housing programs from public housing at one end of the housing continuum. And then we have, so we contract to the government, the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development. We take people off the government's housing register and place them in our homes. Then we also run affordable rental for people who don't qualify for public housing, but we still think they need a bit of assistance. We might charge them 80% of market rent. And then we run a rent-to-buy program where people pay a soft market rent and they get a subsidy at the end to help them transition into our assisted ownership model, which is um, a leasehold model called the Secure Home Program. So that's a um, obviously a big, there's a big need for this in Queenstown. Can you give us a sense of how difficult it is for someone on a relatively low income, maybe they're working in a bar or a hospital or maybe they're the local cop or something, how difficult it is for them to uh, not just buy a house but actually also rent? Yeah, well, it's it's incredibly difficult. I mean, we, we know the median price for homes in this district is, I think, in the latest one, it was over $1.5 million. But even if you look at entry-level housing, you're looking at a million dollars plus for an entry-level home in the district. When we look at our waiting list of 820 households across the district, the average gross household income before tax is 65000 So, it, the numbers just don't stack up and and that's just in terms of buying a property but if you look at even renting a property entry level rentals um, are starting to get really high again I think you're looking at about $800 a week for a standard three bedroom rental property so it's pretty challenging. So uh, you are a, a not-for-profit so where do you get your money from and how do you work with the government for example to get some subsidies for those people who can't afford to pay the $800 for a three-bedroom house. Yeah, well, we do. We work with the government on a number of levels, and so I'll start there first. So, as I mentioned just now, that there's a public housing access where people can receive an income-related rent. Government sets their rent at 25% of their income, and then tops us up to market rent. So, um, government's wearing the sub or carrying the subsidy there. Then we also have a progressive home ownership program called, uh, which is the leasehold model I just referred to. And there we get interest-free loans from the government to help get people into our leasehold program, which is obviously also known as assisted ownership. Um, so that, and, and in the past, we've also received capital grants from the government um, and suspensory loans, but we haven't seen any of those in quite some time. So at the moment, the two main ones we're working off are the IRA, and the progressive home ownership funding. That's what our trust is, is utilising anyway. 
But you've got something quite special in Queenstown in that right back in 2003, when the Jack's Point development got up and running, and for those people who've been to Queenstown, you might even have heard of it. I know as a financial reporter, uh, the dramas about Jack's Point was front page news all around the country because there was a particular finance company that got embroiled. Uh, but Jack's Point was a big deal. Tell us about your origin story. Yeah, sure. So when we were established and council was, um, our local council, the Queensland Lakes District Council, was um, was was responsible for creating our trust and they made us an independent trust rather than a council-controlled entity. Um, and that was so that we could tap into central government funding. However, our council, right from the start, they said, we're going to do this other kind of unique use this other unique tool called inclusionary zoning. That's what it was called back then. These days we refer to it as inclusionary housing. So if I flip between the two, that's why I'm still getting used to the new word. But the the premise of inclusionary housing is that when there's when land is rezoned from rural, say so say from rural to residential, it creates huge uplift and value of that land. Now, not a sort of soil will have turned, but simply the underlying zoning has changed, and that land might have gone from one million to twenty million, for example. So the council has enabled this. Now the council is owned by the community, so. Why shouldn't the community get a little bit of that value uplift, capture that and ensure that there's enough in that new subdivision that this created, there's enough residential housing there for low to moderate income workers. That's kind of the basic philosophy of inclusionary zoning and that's how it's worked. So to date, we've received our trust through council has received close to $25 million in land and cash from a number of developers around the district. And what have you done with that land and cash in terms of building houses, putting people into homes? Yep. So we have housed to date, we've housed 244 households. We currently have a portfolio of around 120. When we receive land from developers, we typically build on that, unless there's some reason why, you know, if it's a million dollar section, then we'll, we'll go sell it and we'll buy a couple, two or three more sections elsewhere. But otherwise, we build on the land that we receive and we put people into one of our homes under one of the programs that we've got. Um, but the inclusionary housing, it's its also enabled us, it's given us a really strong balance sheet and it's enabled us to leverage that and to get into other aspects. So, you know, back in the early days when there was capital grants, we could say to the central government, okay, well, look, we've the developers handed us $2 million. If you chip in $2 million, then we can put that in and we can build um, a development. And that's what we did with our very first development in Lake Hayes Estate. So yeah, it's it's been it's been a bit of a game changer for in the absolute success story of this trust. And there's a lot of interest in this all around the country because this issue where drawing new lines on the maps creates gazillionaires from people who owned land before is essentially privatizing a public action. And it seems completely fair to capture some of that uplift in value and make it useful for the community, and particularly the community that has created that value and needs people to be the local cop or the local nurse or or running the local restaurant. Because the danger is when you have these huge uplifts in land values and not enough land supply, 
you end up with the only people who can afford a house are the millionaires who then wonder why is it they can't find anyone to make their flat white. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And when we first started back in 2007, we had a very strong focus on key workers and we still have that today, police, teachers, nurses, social workers. We look at those core community roles that a community cannot function without and we look at them and say, right, um, we've got a household on our waiting list who fits that that demographic, that makeup, so we want to prioritise them and we can in certain situations. So um it's incredibly important that we have those people in community roles. Yeah, and um, this process of inclusionary zoning is not some sort of idea that fell from outer space. Uh, this is happening all around the world, and particularly in the United States. And as I understand it, the um, the guy who was the planner inside the Queenstown Council who came up with this was Scott Figginshow. And for those who listen to the news over recent years, they'll know that Scott eventually became the CEO of Community Housing Aotearoa. Because he was American, came from America, where inclusionary zoning is a regular, normal thing. It's also used in the United States and in parts of Australia. So could you give us a sense of how much interest there is around the country in the Queenstown experiment, the pioneering exercise on inclusionary zoning or housing? Yeah, and it's fascinating because we've been doing it for 15 years and geographically we're quite isolated. Sometimes I forget that what we're doing is so unique, but then every probably a couple of times a month I'll do a presentation to an external group um, outside our district and it might be a local council or it might be um, the Rethinking Housing Conference that I met you at recently, Bernard, uh, and, and, we'll, and I'll talk about this process and people are overwhelmed. They're like, wow, this is such a great idea and this is about sharing land value growth, capital gains with the people that need it and making sure that the people who can't afford to live there here otherwise are actually able to do so, to live in the district. So we've got huge interest in this process. And currently our council's going through, um, well, they've put forward provisions for a private plan change to bring inclusionary housing back into the district plan. Uh, at the, currently it's, it's not in the district plan in any, um, I guess you would say, relevant form or adequate form. So we're looking to bring it back in and that's the process we're going through. And I think there's a lot of councils around the country watching and waiting and really supporting what QLDC is doing. Yeah. Uh, what is the resource response you get from councils in other places? Because what you're doing is fascinating, but it slightly feels a bit dangerous because <laughs> you've got the New Zealand way is to find yourself some land, get it rezoned, and suddenly become wealthy and not have to pay tax on it. It's like the New Zealand version of winning lotto. And having some change, which means that you have to give up some of those lotto winnings, feels like it's breaching some New Zealand birthright. Uh, what's, what's the feeling you get from, from councillors? 
and others who are looking at this. Just on that, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, that New Zealand birthright, because the other aspect of that is that every Kiwi who grew up from probably before pre-2000s had this idea and expectation that they would be able to buy a quarter-acre home with a standalone home and that would they would own that outright. But what we're finding now, and you see quite clearly, is that people on average incomes don't do that. So they're starting to push back and saying, well, how come... How come this has happened? And and it's just simply not fair that the landowners, who people who own their own property, are starting to walk away with everything. And it's it's becoming very clearly the haves and the haves not in New Zealand. And it's I don't think that's what New Zealanders want. I, that's that's my feeling. When the facts change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy, and that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. At Z, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. You mentioned the uh, the proposal to put this formally into the district plan to essentially formalise this practice, which had been in place for quite some time. And the big developers were quite used to it, quite um, understood it, knew that it applied to all the big developments and were fine with it. But then some were wondering, hang on a minute, what about those infill developers, the mums and dads who are putting a one house out the back? They don't have to pay the inclusionary zoning uh, fee or chop off a bit of land. Tell us about how that proposal to make it a level playing field for all developments, not just the big new suburbs, but the actual infill housing, how that was received politically, I suppose. 
Yeah, I think I think the idea to expand it beyond just the large scale developers came about because of the feedback from those developers saying, "Okay, council, if you're going to do this, make it a level level playing field." However, I think what has happened is the community has pushed back on that and said, "Look, we don't we don't really support that. Um, actually, we think that infill and higher density, in particular areas, is really good. You know, if you're on a 700 square meter section and you've got the ability to subdivide it into two, create one new lot in total, then why wouldn't you um, do that? But if a if a five percent cash contribution on the value of that new section that's being created is going to prohibit it, then that's not a great outcome. So I think it has come down to compromise, right? Saying, okay, in an ideal world, yes, it would be a level playing field. That would be what's fair. That would be what's consistent. But you can't always have what's fair and consistent. Sometimes there has to be compromise. And so now I think where we're going to and what, what our trust is submitting back to council is that we think, yes, we agree in principle with 5% contribution, 5% of the value of any new sections created from large scale land developers coming across to the trust. But let's not worry too much about the smaller ones. If people are subdividing up one lot into two or three, then we don't think that needs to be captured. So you're sort of drawing the line at, um, you know, the, the mums and dads versus the big developers. And, uh, uh, yeah, and how, how do you think uh, that, so you've made your submission to the uh, process where the district plan is going to be changed. There was an election a few weeks ago in which this became one of the hot topics for discussion. Uh, what's your sense? Uh, I know politics is a completely um, weird game and I wouldn't hold anyone to any <laughs> predictions, but what's your sense of how, how this might work out? I, I think that the, the, our new council is supportive of this inclusionary housing provisions. We have some new, we have some new councillors, but we also have a handful of um, councillors who were there last term, and they're they're all um, in general they're supportive of the trust. They're certainly all supportive of the trust, I should say. Um, there's one or two that think there are other ways, perhaps other than inclusionary housing, that um, the trust could be funded. But until those other ideas come through, this is the best that we've come across. But in general, I think that the public has seen the success of the trust for the last 15 years. We're two small towns, Queenstown and Wanaka. Everyone knows someone who's been helped into a community housing trust house because we're, we're not just, we're not kaying aura. We're not doing that job of just purely state housing. We're out there helping, as we talked about, the social workers, the police, the teachers. So people know people in the housing trust homes and they get it. They say, ah, oh, um, you know, that family down the road, they're not leaving town now because they've been able to get into an affordable and secure tenure home. And that's what we're all about. That's what our leasehold model is all about. We don't sell we don't sell the land. We we retain ownership of the land and we sell the improvements under our assisted ownership program. So and that's what we're all about. That way we keep the value of the land and any uplift that comes with that stays with the trust and community ownership in perpetuity. And that enables us to help as many house people as we we can. We've got, as I said, 820 households on our waiting list. So we've got a lot of demand. Yeah, that's one of the um, uh, potential hiccups with inclusionary zoning, that if the uh, community housing trust or some sort of non-profit is gifted the land um, to build a house on and then uh, goes through the process of selling it uh, to, to make it an affordable home for someone to buy, and then they 
buy it and there might be a change of circumstances and within a year or two, they flick it on and make the profit. You can see why the developers are going, oh, hang on a minute, that was uh, like a public subsidy for people to have housing and that was captured by someone else, not me. I wanted to <laughs> capture that. So how, how have you responded to this issue of avoiding the, the quick flicks uh, and the profits going to the uh, people buying the affordable house <laughs> rather than the developers. Yeah, and look, that's exactly what happened. We, when we kicked off back in 2007, we were run, we were running a shared ownership model and that's where typically a household might buy 70%, we would own 30% and over time they would buy us out. Now look, that's really great for that household and it helps move people along the housing continuum towards independence really quickly. But depending on what time they purchased their property, a lot of them have ended up walking away with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of capital gain when the developers who had given us the land said, hey, we're not happy about giving you the land in the first place, but at least if we do, we want to make sure that it's the capital uplift with that stays with the trust. So that's why we moved to this leasehold model where we retain ownership of the land. The household, if they want to sell in time, they want to sell the improvements back to us. They sell it back to us at the original purchase price plus inflation and and also at the same time they're paying a ground rent on the land which is a below market ground rent and that only ever goes up with inflation too so we try and track everything to inflation cpi rather than the wild fluctuations of the property market and some households making huge windfall gains and others not and what's the potential for uh, growth here? Queenstown Lakes District Council has been one of the fastest growing areas in the country in the last decade, if not the fastest. And um, uh, whenever I have flown into Queenstown and thanked my lucky stars when we didn't visit <laughs> visit one of the mountains too quickly, uh, uh, I often see these big, wide-open spaces. And when I get up close, I can see they're full of rabbit holes. <laughs> and I think, what a great place for a, a development. What scale of, of growth could there be for yourselves and, and for the community? Well, interestingly, I, I feel like what you've just described with the um, big empty spaces with rabbit holes is actually land that's zoned and ready for residential housing, but it's sitting there and it's, the owners have been sitting there land banking it for quite some time. So we know that within the district, there's three big landowners who are holding on to land and releasing it very, very slowly. So there's a lot of potential there but it's being slow to come to the market. But in terms of, um, you know, we've we've got this, we've got a goal of 1,000 homes, building 1,000 homes by 2038. Um, we're, uh, at the moment, we're on about 69, so we've got a few to go, but certainly this inclusionary housing will um, make a huge difference in ensuring that we do get there and help all these people on our waiting list. When is the trigger point for when either the land or the, financial contribution is triggered and goes to the trust because the land bankers uh, um, could, in theory, have to do it uh, early on or they could wait until the whole suburbs develop. So how does that work? Yeah, that would just be a part of a negotiation process between council and the developer. But typically and historically, it's always been staged. So, for example, um, last Friday, we received 18 titles from the developer at Longview in Hawea. And in, in total from him, we'll be receiving 58 titles, but um, he's agreed to... Uh, 
I think, double the amount in the first stage, and then they'll be in perhaps lots of tens thereafter. And then what do you do to make sure the house is built? Because, you know, it's, it's not an easy process getting a house built these days. Do you work with the developer who might have some um, scale um, development operations, or do you uh, cart on a, a, a um, pre-cooked house? How does it work? Uh, it really depends on the particular development. So sometimes in some some developments, um, we've been able to work with a developer uh, if, if they're a construction, vertical construction developer as well. But quite often, more often than not, I think actually they are land developers. And so we will work within their covenants and within the district plan rules to build homes. Um, we have now, we've been working with one particular building company for about eight years who have built a Close, close to 100 homes for us. And so we have a, a bit of a suite of um, house designs and that w- we know work well and we can build affordably. So we often look to put them on onto site. Julie Scott, the CEO of the Queenstown Lakes District Community Housing Trust, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks, Bernard. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.